You're listening to The Anthill, a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you a mix of stories and new research from the world of academia. I'm Annabelle Bly. This is our 21st episode, and so it seems appropriate as we come of age to talk about growing up. From parenting to puberty, and what it's like to grow up as a minority in Britain, stay tuned as we journey through some of life's key stages over the course of this podcast. However much Peter Pan tried to avoid it, growing up is something we all have to contend with. Some of us might have a little bit more of it to do. Many will play an instrumental role in bringing up future generations. In fact, parenting is arguably the single most important factor when it comes to children's development, and human approaches to it have changed drastically throughout history. In the past few decades, we've seen the rise of helicopter parents. These are people who are extremely protective and involved in every detail of their children's lives. But what effect is this parenting style actually having on kids? We sent the conversation science editor, Miriam Frankel, to find out. No, let me come and help. Right. First you put the biggest ones on the bottom. No, 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 I'll do that. And then put the smaller ones on top. We've all seen them. Parents who hover around the little children at all times, attending to their every need. Are you sad? I'll buy you a new toy. Bored? I'll play a stimulating game with you. Frustrated? Let me help you with that. This is the helicopter parent, overprotective and super involved in every aspect of their child's life. And the behavior often carries on as children grow into adulthood. This style of parenting has emerged over the last few decades and marks a contrast with how children were raised just 30 or 40 years ago. Back then, most kids were thrown out the door in the morning during the holidays and told not to come back home until dinner time which they did covered in scratches, bruises and dirt. But since the 1970s, the distance that children are allowed to play from home has shrunk by 90%. It's important to remember that helicopter parenting comes from good intentions. As the parent of a three-year-old, I'm probably guilty of it to some extent, even though I try not to. It comes from a place of wanting the best for your child. And we know a lot more about what is good for children's development today than we did a few decades ago. We know that we should engage with our children and we should listen to them. But that doesn't mean that we have to constantly interfere to protect or entertain them. To find out what effect this kind of parenting is having on children, I spoke to Lena Kess, a psychologist at the University of Stirling. One aspect she has looked at is the effect it has on children when parents react very strongly to seeing them in pain. So we did a variety of studies, both in the lab as well as in real life, where children get either a vaccination or a lumbar puncture. And in those studies, we were mainly interested to actually see how parents responded. And in all these studies, whether it was in the lab or um, in a real life experience of uh, child pain, we saw quite some differences across the parental behavior. And we found that parents who are highly distressed worry a lot about their child's pain. And then they also uh, tend to engage in more behaviors that we call protective behaviors. They're going to say, oh, it's going to be over soon. Don't worry, it'll be fine. It won't hurt that much. And they'll be comforting their child quite substantially. So the parents who are less worried, 
feel less stressed about their child's pain experiences, we see that they engage in what we call distracting behaviors more frequently. So we see them reading a book to their child, uh, distracting them with a video game or cracking some jokes or blowing up bubbles during the vaccination. And that seems to help children better stay, report less pain and less distress themselves during these painful procedures compared to when the parents uh, engage in those protective behaviors. Lena believes that this effect may extend to other areas. Parents who get overly worried or protective in response to a child's anxiety, anger or plain boredom may similarly make the experience worse for the child. What's more, it may even have an impact later in life. So we see that if parents are overprotecting and continuously checking up on their child, that this is hampering their independence. And it is particularly having a negative effect in adolescence, where the key task of an adolescent is to become independent of their parent and to find a way for themselves and to find out who they are, what they're going to do. And that goes with trial and error, and they'll make mistakes and things will go wrong. And if you have an overprotective parent, we see that adolescents get less of these opportunities to fail and get less of an opportunity to find their independence with trial and error. And that can be quite um, negative for the development of the child. So what should you do when your child is sad, angry or frustrated? Lena doesn't recommend ignoring them, but says it's all about listening to the child without necessarily solving the situation for them. I think the best thing is to acknowledge it. Um, it's important to make the child feel that these are normal emotions, that everyone feels them, and this will not be the first nor the last time you feel these emotions. And then to find ways together to overcome it. Uh, how can we solve the problem together and ask questions like, well, you want to do this, but it's not possible. Or there are other ways to do these activities. Can mm. you think of a different way to do this? Can you think of a different day maybe of doing this? So asking kind of questions that the child comes to the solution themselves, but that you assist them and guide them a little bit in what might be possible other solutions and give them little hints without actually giving the full solution. While children of helicopter parents are likely to feel loved and protected, some worry they may be slower in developing independence and confidence about their ability to get out of tricky situations on their own. But might there be other effects? Teresa Belton, a visiting researcher at the University of East Anglia, is concerned that children who aren't allowed to be bored, with parents constantly fretting about presenting them with stimulating activities, may become less creative as a result. My original study was looking at the influence of television and videos on children's story making in the 1990s. And I found that amongst the 400 stories written by 10 to 12 year olds that I was looking at, there was surprisingly little imaginativeness. And I wondered whether this itself could be the result of television watching. And I looked back at previous research that had been done as television was being introduced. And there were several studies that, in fact, all concluded using different kinds of methodologies that television stifles the imagination rather than stimulating it. Of course, one chief reason that children gave, and indeed adults, for for watching television was boredom. And so that is how the connection made itself. Teresa thinks there's a danger with this constant stimulation. If people just allow themselves to be bored rather than turning on the TV, they may find themselves doing something a lot more creative. Of course, 
watching a screen is one response to boredom. There are other ways in which you can use unallocated time for children, going out in the garden, making things, talking to each other. And in fact, I found that the main ingredient in children's stories was their own direct, unmediated experience, whatever that might be. And so that is how I came across the idea that, that boredom and creativity have some kind of connection to each other. And then later on, I started to notice how there were creative professional people who referred to the importance of boredom for their own creativity in different fields and how this could be a, a stimulus to, to imagination. Mommy, come and help me! Mommy, Mommy look at me! Mommy, come and help me! Mommy, come and help me! I'm here, I'm here, boys. You okay? Oh, no, no, come down from there, not that high. No, 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 a little bit lower. No, no, you wait there, don't go up there, I'll come and help. Teresa thinks that online activity is one thing that needs to be monitored closely by parents. But other than that, children don't need constant supervision, she argues. And this is indeed a problem with helicopter parenting. Obviously, parents need to be aware of potential dangers to their children, but maybe the physical dangers are fewer than, than they think. Children are born naturally curious and naturally active. And I think by overprotecting and, and constantly feeding children's entertainments and activities, you're likely to blunt that. I think parents need to respect their children's innate curiosity and zest for life and to encourage that by giving them space and time to do their own thing and some basic raw materials and also maybe little challenges. If a child runs out of ideas, it's uh, good for a parent perhaps to say, well, why don't you set up a treasure hunt, say? So what has caused the rise of helicopter parenting? Teresa thinks it's a combination of a consumer society and a child-centered way of thinking. A large part of this whole picture is very intimately tied up with our consumer culture. It suffuses everything we do, the way we live, and an assumption that every need we have, every want we have or we think we have, we can buy our way out of. If you put that together with a, in many ways, positive development towards a child-centered way of thinking about parenting, you get a recipe for constantly buying children's stuff or organized activities. The, the toys and equipment that are designed for children are all closed. They all have specific rules that they work by. But if you think of giving children raw materials rather than processed materials, if you like, planks of wood, sand, stones, buckets, even actually digital camera for an older one, it's an open-ended thing. It's not easy trying to make your children feel safe and loved and also letting them go off and develop on their own. At a time when most parents are working full-time, we want to spend quality time with our children when we do see them. And one thing is for sure, parents always get judged, whatever approach they choose to take. Ultimately, we need to realize that most parents are doing the best they can, and many experts agree that that is probably good enough. But keep in mind that there are drawbacks to incessantly hovering over your children. 
So when it's six o'clock and you're juggling a late work deadline, getting dinner ready, and your preschooler is moaning about being bored, you shouldn't feel bad for just leaving them to it. That was the Conversations science editor Miriam Frankel. Just a flag before we go any further: if you ever want to get in touch with us at the Ant Hill, if you've got a question you want answering or an idea you want to share, please email us at podcast at theconversation.com. Next up, we fast forward to puberty. It's probably not a stage of growing up that many of us remember with much fondness. Making that transition from child to teenager can be pretty confusing and difficult. Yet in recent years, there has been a growing body of research about puberty starting at an earlier age than it used to in young girls. It's caused alarm bells to ring out in parts of the media. Here's our society editor, Gemma Ware, to investigate. Age eight for girls and age nine for boys. That's when it used to be considered early for a child to start puberty. But things have changed. So there's been, um, since the late 1990s, um, more and more findings that puberty is starting to come earlier, particularly in girls. And that started with research um, in the States, in uh, North America, and but has since then been replicated, you know, in UK, in Europe, um, in Asia, across the world, really, that more and more girls, and to some extent boys, but mostly girls, are starting puberty um, before they turn nine. That's Celia Roberts, a professor of gender and science studies at Lancaster University, whose latest book is about puberty. So today in in North America, according to some research, shows that 10% of white girls would start puberty by the time they're seven, 25% of black girls would start puberty by the time they're seven. And then if you take that up to eight, by the time they're eight, 18% of white girls would have started puberty and 43% of black girls would have started puberty by the time they're eight. While the average age for a girl to have her first period is still around 11, girls are starting to show the early signs of puberty much earlier, and its duration is being stretched. I don't think that's a thing that we think socially yet. I think we still think of puberty as something that happens when you're 10 or 11. But for lots of children, it's happening when they're 7 or 8. Celia's research looks at the way society is dealing with this changing reality, which many commentators present as a crisis. We'll come back to that a bit later. But first, to find out a bit more about the science of what is going on in a girl's body when puberty begins... I called up Jill Wilson, research associate in immunology at the University of Glasgow. So the first sign of puberty is when uh, breasts begin to grow. This is followed by pubic hair growth. And then within a few years, the onset of menstruation occurs. So this is the first uh, stages of puberty are accompanied by rapid changes in height and weight. And by the time puberty is completed within around four years, the girl will generally have reached her adult height. Jill explains that puberty is triggered by a chain reaction of a number of different hormones. The first stage happens, which is a surge of a hormone called gonadotrophin-releasing hormone, um, and this is produced in the hypothalamus of the brain. This stimulates the pituitary gland to make luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, um, and these act on the ovaries to produce sex hormones, and it's the levels of these sex hormones, such as oestrogen, that lead to the physical changes that occur. So that's the science of what's actually happening, but why is it starting earlier than it used to? There are a number of theories but no clear consensus among scientists about the answer. One area that's generated a lot of research is a link between early-onset puberty and obesity. 
So it's widely accepted that obesity in childhood is related to early puberty. And the mechanism for this involves the levels of a hormone called leptin. Um, and this is produced by fat cells. The more obese a child is, the more leptin that's produced. And many researchers have studied the correlation between high levels of leptin and early onset puberty. But Jill says there are lots of other avenues being explored too. Um, so there are a lot of other theories as well. Some are related to endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, and these include things called phthalates, um, bisphenol A, which you quite often see described as BPA, and also pesticides. And the reasons that these are thought to stimulate early puberty is because some of them are structurally similar to sex hormones. She says that BPAs, which can be found in plastic, can actually mimic the way oestrogen works in the body. One of the, the main problems with it is that it was used in baby bottles. So it's, it's thought that um, unbound BPA would leach out into the, into the milk. Although most baby bottles now say BPA-free, these chemicals are still present in water bottles and other industrial plastics. There are also concerns about the impact of other environmental contaminants, such as some of the chemicals used in pesticides, on early puberty in both girls and boys. Still, there is no consensus and researchers are still exploring other reasons. Um, so there, there are a number of other uh, avenues of research as well. Some people are looking at the effect of light exposure, basically how much light you're exposed to. So the hormone melatonin is thought to suppress puberty. That's released in the dark. So the more light you're exposed to, the more likely you can be to undergo early puberty. That's one avenue of research. Others also look at socioeconomic status, which is all kind of wrapped up with your levels of nutrition and how much stress you're likely to undergo as a child. At the heart of this search for answers is a concern about what starting puberty early means for children. There are known health risks, as Jill explains. Starting at puberty early can have effects on health in later life. So it's known that um, developing breasts before the age of 10 increases your risk of breast cancer by a factor of around 20%, as compared to girls who have developed between the ages of 11 and 12. There's also increased risks of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, um, also of depression and eating disorders. There are still many unanswered questions on the biological mechanisms for why this happens and ongoing research to find the answers. Jill and her colleagues, for example, are looking more closely at why children who start puberty earlier are more likely to have breast cancer in later life. The longer-term risks aside, what is it actually like for a girl, and her parents for that matter, who starts puberty age six or seven? As part of her research, Celia Roberts has interviewed some mothers whose daughters began puberty at a very young age. Here's Celia again. Their mums had a lot of worries about it. They were worried about the effects of early puberty on their girls' social life and on their psychological life. They were worried about the physical outcomes. But their reports were that the girls were kind of managing, that it had been hard at first. But if kind of if they remained calm, the girls remained calm. One of their big concerns related to what Celia calls sexualisation. They were worried that the girls looked older than their years, which of course they do start to do, and that because we live in a sexist culture that they would then be targets for sexual harassment in the street, for example, because they looked you know, like girls with breasts and they looked more grown up and yet they're only eight or nine. Had any of the girls actually had any trouble or was it just a concern that the mothers had? They had, not, not sort of directly, rather indirectly. So one of the mums reported to me, she had a girl who started going through puberty when she was seven 
And by the age of 10, which is when I was interviewing her mum, she was, you know, had a quite grown up looking body. And the mum reported her male friends kind of starting to talk to her about how gorgeous her daughter was. And they're sort of catching themselves short when she said, actually, she's nine. And then sort of them realising, oh, sorry, sorry. So it wasn't it wasn't sort of intentional, aggressive sexism, but it was nonetheless that she could see that they were sort of noticing her child's body and, and sex, seeing it in sexual terms, which she found really, really difficult. This plays into the question of whether puberty starting as early as six or seven in some girls is a crisis and whether society should be trying to fix it. Certainly in newspaper stories and magazine stories, there's a real sense of crisis and about this loss of childhood innocence that I think is culturally very important to us and part of this wider concern about that sort of early entrance of sexuality into children's lives and that somehow we've lost control of that, that children are seeing too much pornography, that you know little girls are wearing Playboy t-shirts, that children should are wearing bras. She remembers a controversy that happened in 2017 when the British high street chain Primark brought out a padded bra for seven-year-olds. It got a lot of publicity. Seven-year-olds are growing breasts and they might need to buy bras and actually padded bras might make them feel more comfortable because actually early breasts can be very painful to touch. So there could be reasons why a padded bra for a child isn't just a sexualizing thing. It might actually be a comfortable thing. Um, I think we need to sort of just try and tone it down a bit and think, okay, it's a shift. Maybe it's a change in what childhood means or maybe we need to sort of disentangle our feelings about puberty and sexuality. So maybe we don't want to think of a seven-year-old as you know, becoming a woman or entering sexuality, but she might nonetheless be growing breasts and pubic hair. And I think we need to have a less concerned relationship to that. Uh, I think that would help children and it would help parents. Celia says we need to remember that puberty is a transitional stage in a person's life between childhood and adulthood. What's changing is that this stage is going on for longer than it used to. And both parents and children need to come to terms with what that means. So I think we used to have an idea that you went through puberty at 9 or 10, you had your period at 11, and then you're then starting to be a teenager. If you're 6 or 7, and you're not going to have your first period till you're 11, that's a really quite a long time to develop into someone who can manage menstruation and someone who might be thinking about um, sexuality in a slightly more grown-up way. So I think as adults, we need to disentangle our ideas about sexuality from puberty a bit. And actually, the mums I spoke to said the girls were doing that. So the girls might be being a bit teenage in their moods. They might be struggling to get to sleep as well as they used to. They might be a bit embarrassed about having breasts at swimming or whatever. But actually, they were still playing with dolls and um, roller skating and reading Harry Potter. This also raises the question of what age to talk to children about puberty. Celia has done some research with a sex education forum and found that many children aren't taught about puberty until they're 10 or 11. She says that for some, that's just too late. Six-year-olds really need to start knowing about these processes because it is going to be happening to them and their friends six, seven, eight. And so we need to really think about the curriculum and think about when do we start talking about these things with children. I think people are nervous about talking about puberty with young children because they think it means talking about intercourse. I think we need to disentangle those and talk about it in terms of bodily changes, which don't mean you're no longer a child. You can be a child who's starting to grow breasts. That's okay. 
um, and sexuality will come in the future. We don't need to go into the details, but it will come. Um, but yeah, to start to pull apart these physical changes, changes in your body and sex as a future, pleasant, pleasurable activity would be really great. So what should a parent do if their child starts showing signs of puberty at a very young age? Here's Jill again. Medically, the NHS guidelines state that girls that show signs of puberty before the age of eight should speak to their GP. Um, and doctors will then first rule out um, an underlying cause. So this could be like a brain tumour or a brain infection or a thyroid condition. But this is uh, kind of more rare. Uh, so in most cases, there is no known cause for the early puberty. So girls can be treated with drugs. So these Drugs act on the brain to stop the hormones that start the early puberty and they pause the onset of puberty. Doctors will take a number of factors into account before starting a young girl on a course of these drugs. These include how old the girl is, how quickly puberty is progressing and how the girl's bones are developing. This is because of concerns about the possible impact of stopping or pausing puberty on a girl's future height and bone density. Celia says there is still a lot to learn about the longer-term effects of these drugs. So some of the key clinicians in the field suggest that it's better if children don't take those drugs um, if it if it can be avoided. Um, so they say if you reassure parents that you know their children are just at the early end of normal and help them have strategies for helping their kids to understand this process and to feel okay about it, that's preferable to taking the medication. Do you think there might be a case perhaps that some parents, if their little girl nearing age seven might be showing signs of early puberty. They just want her to take a drug. They are the ones driving the intervention as such. Is yeah. it almost about trying to tell the parents that this is okay? Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't done a proper study of that, so I can't absolutely say, but that is certainly my feeling from having spoken to clinicians in the UK and having spoken to parents, actually, and then reading the American literature that that's the case, that often it's driven by parental anxiety. And that so if the clinicians can then reassure the parent that it's actually normal, then, you know, it's just, it's unnecessary. And so I'm not saying that in every case it shouldn't be done, but I guess the the risk is that it would become something normal. And when you're looking at the American literature, you start looking, there's websites, there's direct-to-consumer marketing, you know, there's profit to be made out of giving drugs like these to kids. So that's a very different scene to the UK scene, where obviously it's not in the NHS's interest to encourage people to take these expensive drugs. Whatever the reasons for why some girls are starting puberty younger than the generations before them, it's important that children and their parents get the information they need to make the choice that's right for them. Puberty is an important part of growing up. While young girls should be made aware of what's about to happen to them, it doesn't mean that they have to stop being children. That was Ant Hill producer Gemma Ware. In our third and final portion of this podcast we take a look at what it's like growing up as a minority. Now, as a mixed-race person, I am all too familiar with being asked where I'm from. No, but where are you really from? Otherwise, I've gotten off fairly lightly. For many British Muslims, however, that's not the case. Recent years have seen a huge spike in Islamophobic attacks. They surged by 500% in the city of Manchester following the bombing at an Ariana Grande concert last year. 
Police figures for London showed a similar rise in Islamophobic hate crime following the stabbings in Borough Market. And it's women who are bearing the brunt of these rising attacks. According to findings by the hate monitoring group Tal Mama, the abuse has become so targeted that some Muslim women have resorted to wearing caps in place of headscarves to prevent being attacked. So what's it like for young Muslims growing up in Britain today? Holly Squire has the story. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and second only to Christianity in terms of its number of followers. But this could change if current trends continue, according to research published by the US-based Pew Research Centre. The findings predict that the Muslim population in the UK is set to triple over the next 30 years and that 10% of all people in Europe will be Muslim by 2050. And yet, despite this growth, in many ways, things are still far from easy for Muslims living in the UK. To find out more, I headed to Bradford, which has the youngest and fastest growing Muslim population outside London. Now, I've just arrived at Bradford Station, a city that's well known for its diversity. Bradford's history since the Industrial Revolution has been marked by the movement of people into the city, with the most recent census showing that nearly a quarter of the 500,000 strong population is Muslim, mostly of Pakistani origin. And I'm here to find out more about what it's like to grow up as a young Muslim in this city. My name's Yunus Alam. I work at the University of Bradford in the Division of Sociology and Criminology. I'm a senior lecturer and I tend to focus on ethnic relations. In the past I've looked at counter-terrorism policies, prevent and social cohesion, but also looking at ethnic relations more broadly, presently looking at cars. Presently looking at cars, looking at cars. Yep, that's right. Eunice's research is presently looking at cars. I'll let him explain the link. It came about in the first bit of research I did. Well, I was talking to these young Pakistani Bradfordian guys. And quite a few of them were going on about the bloody cars, you know, going on about the cars. And there were some interesting stories uh, about being stopped because some of them drove really nice cars. And there is this perception that if you drive a nice car, right, and by nice I mean an expensive looking car, and if you're not white, and if you're not oldish, there's a layer of suspicion that follows that car around. So a lot of these young Pakistani guys that were driving these nice-ish cars that seemed to be beyond their reach, you know, because the mindset of many people, if you're young, BME. BME, that's black and minority ethnic. In a city, Bradford, driving a nice car, you must be some kind of criminal. Either you're dealing drugs or who knows what. And a number of these guys were telling me they were continually getting stopped by the police, by the popo, as they would call it. And, they, you know, they had nothing to hide, so they were, but they were just getting fed up. And one guy was telling me he got stopped by the same copper a few times. And, you know, he kind of almost got to know this copper. He was like, become a friend or something. like. You know? And he said, uh, this officer asked him, on the second occasion, I think he stopped him, what is it that you do? And he said, officer, I work for the Inland Revenue. Right? I just happen to like cars, and I live with my mum and dad. Right, I don't pay any bills. That means, you know, my salary, I can afford to save it and spend it how I see fit. And I like my cars. I like my blinged up cars. As Eunice explained, he first came up with the idea of researching cars after hearing a lot about them in his earlier work. This research involved talking to young British Pakistani Muslim men in the Bradford area. It was carried out not long after the so-called Northern Disturbances, which happened in the summer of 2001. 
when a number of northern towns in England erupted in violent clashes predominantly sparked by racial tensions. Oldham, Burnley and Bradford experienced violence which saw hundreds of young Asian men take to the streets and the idea behind Eunice's research was to give a voice to these young men and hear about their lives in their own words. There were second, third, fourth generation Pakistani, British Pakistani, right? Some were religious, some were. Some were working, some were. So there was lots of complexity and variety, but overwhelmingly I thought it was strangely banal. It wasn't remarkable in the sense that they weren't ritually burning flags or anything and saying death to the West and all that shit. None of that was happening. Uh, I mean, they all had good readings of the way in which Islam and Muslims were being represented. They were all very literate when it came to that. You know, you could argue that they were politicised, but were they radical? Were they prepared to go on jihad? No. Most people are probably quite interested in just getting on with things, you know. They're no different to anybody else who wants to have decent opportunities, access to infrastructure, healthcare, education, all that stuff. That's what they want. You know, that's what most people want. Didn't need a sociologist to analyse their stuff because it was very transparent. And I know when we spoke on the phone and I said that the title for this was going to be Growing Up Muslim in the yeah, UK yeah. and you sort of said, come on, you know, so much of that depends on where you grow yeah, up, exactly. your family. It's not just regional variations. There are all these, again... Socioeconomic. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And, and I think things like class, gender, you know, a male's experience of being Muslim is going to be very different to a female's. Generationally, it's going to be different. You know, if you're, if you're established middle class, for example, and you're a Muslim, you know, you're going to have all sorts of types of capital that's going to help you curtail or offset the impacts of discriminations that you may otherwise face if you were kind of established working class. You know, in places like Bradford, there's a relatively large population of Muslims. Um, so I guess there's a familiarity there. That doesn't mean to say everything's happy and everybody's wonderful. You know, there's a hell of a lot of racism more generally. To find out more, I put in a call to an expert in faith and peaceful relations. And you'll have to excuse the quality of the line. It's a little bit poppy in places. My name is Dr. Saria Cheruvalil Contractor. I am a research fellow in faith and peaceful relations at Coventry University. I think young Muslims in Britain are facing a number of challenges. There's the whole challenge of terrorism taking place in the name of Islam and young people being troubled by it, troubled both by you know the unnecessary, deplorable violence that takes place, but then also the fact that it's taking place in their faith and to then think about all of this, rationalize all of about this for themselves, but also for their communities, because they act as negotiators, as mediators between Islam and the wider world. And I had young women telling me how wearing the hijab means they immediately become representative of their faith. So think about the pressure then, the added pressure that this might bring to a teenager who's anyway got to deal with a whole load of teenage issues, hormones, angst and whatnot. Saria explains that for many young Muslims, they are navigating the changing face of British Islam. Saria describes this as being very different to the Islam first generation migrants experienced, for this is a hybrid identity of two cultures coming together and uniting, like curry on chips or fish and chips with chilli sauce. In this way, many young Muslims are having to think about issues well beyond just who they are or what they want to be when they grow up, and are instead having to consider things like global politics and world religion. And for some children, this can be totally overwhelming. Zaria's latest research project focuses on the experience of British Muslim children growing up in the care system. Now, Saria tells me that Muslim children are among those who wait the longest to be placed in permanent homes. 
and the challenge of being young, British and Muslim going through the care system can be highly traumatic. As soon as a child is placed in a permanent setting, we know that their life chances, their life outcomes begin to improve. We know that the child is more settled, the child is happier, a happy child will do better in education, will have better social networks. From the way Saria explains things, it sounds like for a lot of young Muslim children in the care system, being placed with a Muslim family can help them to settle quicker and feel more comfortable. Though it must be said this isn't always the case. The problem, though, is that there are limited numbers of Muslim foster placements available in the UK. So for many Muslim children, the chances of finding a permanent home where Islam is the practice religion are pretty slim. And in many ways, the significance of this echoes a lot of what my next interviewee spoke about. Jo Pei Tan is a senior lecturer in the Department of Social Work and Social Care at Manchester Metropolitan University. Her research looks at parenting in different cultural contexts and she explains how important it is that children from multicultural backgrounds feel able to figure out their identity, both in and out of the home. And again, the line's a bit tinny here. It is very important for the children to feel comfortable with their own cultural identity. They need to have positive role models in their family or in the early stage of their life just to make sure that they are on the right track and they feel they are being, um, their, their resilience are being nurtured. That is very important for them to develop a, a strong sense of identity and to feel confident about themselves. Joe Pei explains that for some children who come from a mixed heritage background, this can almost create an environment where they might feel like one person at home with their family and an entirely different person when they're with their friends. It is very normal for children uh, from mixed background to kind of adjust their behaviour depending on which set of family that they are with. So they tend to um, adjust their behaviour to be more religious or uh, more liberal. But as Joe Pei points out, this doesn't always have to be a negative thing for children. And in fact, it can sometimes be a positive. The latest literature actually show that uh, shifting behaviour as in more adaptable to different kind of uh, societal requirement might be a positive and strengthening uh, values for uh, adolescent development. So while, of course, growing up Muslim is going to be different to growing up Jewish or Christian or even in a no-faith household, the thing that's really struck me throughout all of this is that despite differences in background, it seems that teenagers and young people share a lot of the same concerns, regardless of their religion. The Conversation's education editor there, Holly Squire. That's it for this episode of The Anthill. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com and sign up to our free daily newsletter. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the love with your friends and even give us a review online. And check out our fortnightly audio long read podcast, In Depth Out Loud. The latest episode tells the tale of how slimming became an obsession with women in post-war Britain. Here's a taster. Diets peddled by today's women's press are more often than not repackaged versions of meal plans published 50 years ago. Post-Christmas diets, steak diets, beach body diets, they've all been around for much longer than people realise. That's in-depth out loud which you can find on theconversation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All that's left to say is a big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios and to Valentina Cipriani for editing help. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>